Hello, listeners. This is your spoiler warning. We will be spoiling Earth Abides and any other book we have read this season. It was curious. Here, they had been for 21 years merely using water that continued to flow. And yet, they had never given any real consideration to where the water came from. It had been a gift from the past, as free as air, like the cans of beans and bottles of ketchup that could be had just by walking into a store and taking them from the shelves. Ish, indeed, had vaguely thought about the matter sometimes, and wondered how long the water would continue to run, and even considered vaguely what they should do to develop another supply. But he had never got round to doing anything. Welcome to the Book Club Podcast. Today we are discussing Earth Abides by George R. Stewart. I'm Carly, and I was very frustrated with Ish's lack of action in this book, so maybe we'll talk a little bit about that, but uh, that's that's my first thought about this. I'm Caroline, and I love this book because it takes the love for and respect for nature that we find in solar punk generally, but to the next level. And in my opinion, really puts humans in their place in regard to nature. And so I think in some ways it's a lot more solar than punk, uh, which is an interesting contrast to the other books we've read. And today we have our friend Margaret joining us. Margaret is a good friend of ours who is a great reader and thinker, and we're very excited to have her with us today to talk about Earth Abides. Hi, everyone. I'm Margaret, and you'll hear more from me as this podcast goes on, but This book grew on me as I read it. Yeah, same. Okay, the story begins with a worldwide pandemic wiping out most of humanity. Our protagonist, Ish, is out in the wilderness gathering research when he's bitten by a snake. And when he recovers, he returns to find that civilization is dead. He decides to drive across the country to observe how nature responds to the absence of humans. He finds other survivors, but doesn't want to spend time with any of them. He returns to his childhood home in San Francisco, and after a long period, he gets tired of solitude and decides to find another person when he sees their fire in the distance. And that's where he finds M. They immediately like each other and soon decide to try to start a family. The two of them start to build a community called the Tribe. In what he calls the quick years, the community grows quickly, with seven adults who keep on having children. Then the second generation becomes old enough to marry and have children of their own. Ish worries about preserving civilization and teaching the children in a school, but most of them have no interest in learning how to read, except for Joey, Ish's youngest son. The tribe survives by scavenging canned food from stores, fishing, and slaughtering cattle. They don't make much of an effort to farm. After about 20 years, the city water system fails. Ish has the idea to send two of the teenage boys to explore the country and see how others live. And they return a few months later with a guest named Charlie, who Ish dislikes immensely and immediately. (laughs) Over the course of his first few days with the tribe, um, Charlie makes his intentions known that he would like to sleep with Evie, a woman who lives in part of the tribe who has a mental disability. And when Ish confronts him about this, he defies him and says that he's going to do what he wants to do. So Ish and Em meet with two of the other men from the tribe, Ezra and George, to decide what to do with Charlie. 
Ezra tells them that Charlie has confessed to having multiple sexually transmitted diseases and because of his intentions to connect with Evie and because of the possibility of spreading those diseases, um, they decide to execute Charlie and to do it immediately. The tribe goes through an epidemic of typhoid and Joey, Ish's youngest son, dies. With that, Ish loses hope for the tribe to resurrect civilization. Ish comes up with a different method for teaching the children how to survive in the world when scavenging is no longer an option. He makes himself a bow and arrow, and the children take an interest. They make their own bows and arrows, and eventually one day, Ish's 12-year-old son, Walt, takes the initiative to hunt a rabbit. Ish lives a very long time, until he is the last person who remembers the world before civilization collapsed. His great-grandson, Jack, takes care of him, and the tribe treats him like a sacred oracle. His hammer has become a symbol of his knowledge and leadership. At the end of the book, a wildfire burns through his neighborhood, and Jack and a few other men bring Ish across the Bay Bridge to where the tribe will form a new settlement. Ish observes how they interact with a mountain lion and how they ignore the roads and railroad. He notices the hills and wonder if all his efforts to build a society matter. He notices that those same hills look like a woman's breasts, and he thinks about Im's courage and how the actions of man mean so little when earth abides. So to transition to an opening question for this podcast, I would like to ask, why Ish? Um, And so the book focuses very closely on Ish and his perspectives and what he thinks about the world and his travels. And I thought a lot as I was reading that this would be a very different book if instead of focusing on Ish, the author had focused on M, um, Ish's wife, or Ezra, or George, the other two men mentioned earlier, or even Evie or Charlie, um, and what that book would look like and how that book would be different. Um, And so why do we choose Ish as the focus of the story? And why does that focus on Ish make the story what it is? I think one of the things that is relevant is that the narrator says that Ish is an educated man and he seems to take great pride in that and identify with that. So I think, especially compared to the other characters, he has more of an emotional connection to civilization, whatever that means. I, I think because of the focus on this character, we get to see the sadness of that loss a little more clearly. Yeah, his preoccupation with civilization and is what distinguishes him from the other characters. And uh, he does make some sort of disturbing comparisons about his the other members of the tribe and how they just they just seem willing to just do what they want during every day and how I wonder if that's supposed to make them seem like they integrate into nature more naturally. Like we've talked about in solar punk, how man is separate from nature and there's a desire to sort of reconnect and be part of the natural cycles. But there is this separation between man and nature and ish warns that separation a lot and the return to nature that the rest of the tribe seems to have no trouble just embracing The interesting thing, though, is that Ish is kind of a weak man as well. You know, despite being chosen as the leader and despite having this enormous love for civilization, again, you know, using a broad term, which is what he does, he doesn't take the steps to really preserve it. You know, they try to teach the kids to read, but it's never really a hit. 
They never really get any sort of school going with any regularity, which I think some of that's Ish's fault and some of it just emphasizes how hard it would be to keep that going. I mean, if you are the one person among seven adults who cares that people continue to know history and chemistry and, you know, all these products of civilization, first of all, how would you do that without buy-in? And then even if there was a path, it would require something like unremitting effort for decades, right? And you would never know if it really bore fruit or not. So all that being said, he was facing some difficulties, but he was also kind of a weak man because he didn't try that hard, did he? When I think about Ish's hanging on to society contrasted with the way other folks hang on to society, like y'all were talking about how like he wants to hang on to society, but I immediately thought of George and George's wife. Is George's wife Maureen, I believe? Mm-hmm. So George and Maureen ish doesn't think they're very smart, um, but George is very good at building things and assembling things, and he's always making sure that their houses have like fresh coats of paint, and that if anything is falling apart, things are put back together, um, things like that, and so. You have George, who's going through and making sure that the houses still look beautiful. And Maureen, who is going through and making sure that everything inside her house is well kept. And they purchase, or they don't purchase because there's no money, but they they go out and they acquire all of these things that they would have had in a nice middle class house had society not fallen. And so they have like the perfect lampshades and the perfect record player. And none of the things actually work. They have them and they're hanging on to them because they have vested that these things are important and we want to have these things and have this importance in our house. And so Everyone is hanging on to symbols, but they're doing it in different ways. And the symbols that Ish clings to most dearly, like school, like reading, like knowledge, may not be as shared by those other people. Or probably the better way to put it is that they they think of, I don't know, they conceptualize knowledge in different ways. He talks about, you know, at one point how Maureen goes off to clean the house rather than wanting to celebrate at a new year. And I'm just like... (laughs) <laughs> I wish I could be that dedicated to keeping my house clean. <laughs> so, so I don't know. I feel like something else I want to make sure that we bring in is that because we're centering on Ish and we're centering on what he thinks is important, that that doesn't mean George's commitment to a well-maintained home isn't important, that Maureen's commitment to a well-maintained home isn't important. And so just wanted to think about that. It's not that they aren't smart. It's that Ish doesn't appraise them as smart and they have different ways of thinking about things. So I don't know. No, I I definitely think that's fair. But I think Ish, I don't know how much he contributes. Like in a healthy society, you have people bring their strengths and to to the group and and then that mitigates their weaknesses. And Ish's strength is to observe and study how things are in nature and respond. And I do really enjoy in the book the sort of interludes. I, I think it's supposed to be from an omniscient narrator uh, of like, here's what happens to the dogs, which is all very sad. Or like, we learn the reason the water failed, Ish never figures, or I guess maybe they do figure it out, but we, but we get this interlude explaining like, this pipe was misaligned and then it led to a leak. And then that led, you know, and, and the, the chain reaction that led to the water system to fail. And Ish has the ability to observe these things and make the connections on a higher level, or not just the ability, the interest in doing this of like understanding how the infrastructure, 
has worked and now is failing and what would need to be done to maintain it. But he doesn't really, this is my frustration with him, he doesn't take the action to make sure that the tribe is taken care of, right? Like, mm-hmm. and that that's what I find super frustrating. And solar punk are, are the people we've seen in solar punk are so forward thinking and systems thinking. And, and in this book, we get a different example, which is fascinating, but I found it extremely frustrating. Like if you know these things, why don't you put your knowledge to use to make sure that your family and your tribe is provided for? Yeah. I think even specifically with the water example, he really prides himself that he has the capacity for thought to think about and wonder about how this happened and he you know, cites that as making him different from others, which it seems to. It seems like the others just accept that and make the adjustments they have to make without wondering why. But he wonders why and then doesn't do anything that would get him to how, <laughs> you know, to get him to anything useful. But he's very proud of that ability. Mm-hmm. And I do almost feel like, and granted, at some point Ish is injured and getting around is trouble for him. But at some point, you would have said, hey, George, let's take a walk and see what the water system looks like. Mm-hmm. And I, I bet you that George would have seen that pipe and been like, that is a leak. I would like to fix it. Yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. If you had put George in the right spot, he would have fixed it. Yeah. And the value Ish would have provided would have been thinking to put George in the right spot, but they didn't even do that. Yeah. There's, to me, a connection between this passivity on Ish's part And the relationship to the past, which is also very different from the other solar punk books. So here, civilization was great, right? There was no collapse that was caused by anything humans did. So there's none of that dynamic of having to second guess and reassess who we are as people and what we do. But then also, they just live off the past for decades, right? It was so bountiful and so well done, so abundant that they just live off the past. And there seems to me to be a relationship between that and them and how passive they are really at their heart, but I can't quite Mm -hmm. connect it. There just is a store full of food and there just is water coming out of the tap. And I feel like to a certain extent, that is how I feel about life now. Like, you know, I I get my curbside order and I go, oh, bummer, they're out of sage this week. And then I just don't cook with sage or I send my spouse to a different HEB to see if they have sage after work or something like that. And how, how am I any different from them other than the fact that there is a supply chain working to make sure that I have, I don't know, sage and lemons and milk and things like that. So, Well, I think just knowing that there's a supply chain, yeah. I think all of us are aware of how much more fragile it is than maybe yeah. we thought four years ago. But there seems value just in that awareness that you don't take it for granted. Well, yeah, I think I've, ta- I think I've talked a little bit about how solar punk feels very reflective of my own life, and my recent life decisions of like where I live. Caroline, you had asked us before we recorded to think about that reaction to the loss of civilization. And I, I don't know, maybe I've just, I, I've loved dystopia, apocalyptic fiction for a really long time. <laughs> and be, like just personally being involved with like intentional community and people who are very cognizant of the idea that the grid could fail. So I have solar panels on my house and I ha- I collect rainwater and I'm guard like I am I don't know if it how conscientious it was but 
I feel more prepared. <laughs> like if civilization collapsed, I know which of my neighbors have good gardens and where their rain barrels are. Like, like I feel like prepared for it and I have been preparing for it even before COVID shut things down and the supply chain problems became very widely known. So like you don't have that same experience or was it different for you when the civilization collapsed in this book? So for me, the difference between what you're describing and what I found most affecting in the book was in the book, there was a loss, not just of conveniences, but of certain ways of thinking and being that can only probably can only exist on top of a civilization that is that complex. Like a lot of what we are doing right now is both provided for by the technology because we're not in the same room as we do this. But then also the fact that we have a sufficient education and free time to spend on just really <laughs> unnecessary intellectual endeavors, I think that would go away. Uh, and that would be the loss to me or a big part of the loss, right? Because if you go back to anything like subsistence living, there was a lot of labor required for that, right? You did not have extra time and energy for something like a book club. But but we don't see people do, doing that labor in this book. Yeah, that's true. But we do see the same loss. Hmm. They just, it seems to be that the loss comes down to maybe the sort of personality that likes intellectual endeavors was never really that common. And then when you have a huge disaster where there's only a dozen people remaining in the Bay Area and only one of them is an intellectual, well, yeah, it's not going to continue, right? Like maybe you just need thousands and millions of people <laughs> because it's not a society-wide inclination. I'm even thinking about how as your systems get more complex, your needs get more complex. So like I'm thinking about getting a little bit into what I do when I'm not being a guest on a podcast, I'm writing a dissertation. And part of the reason I'm doing it is because I felt like there was a gap in the knowledge that we needed to better understand something in order for a system that a lot of people use and a lot of people depend on to work well for those people. But if you don't have any people, you don't have a university. So you don't need somebody to come in and say, well, here are some systemic issues within the university. How do we improve those things? So it feels like a need. But if all of a sudden there were no universities, it would be a little bit ridiculous to keep thinking about it. And I think it's interesting that I feel like I share that perspective that Ish has. I would want people to be reading. I would want people to be thinking about things. I would want to, you know, to save some knowledge just in case like people built themselves back up to give those many generations down the line like, you know, information about how, okay, this is how you run a system well, so they don't have to like, I don't know, try feudalism and see it fail or something like that. <laughs> sure. But so like, then it becomes a matter of there ain't no point in me writing this dissertation about university systems. But what do I do to make it so that when people think, hey, we all ought to go to school, that they have a good setup to do it in the future? Well, I think uh, so Ish kind of notices the taboos that have built up in the tribe, which I think is interesting. Like instead of this conscientious like planning of what the values of the, the community will be after 20 years, he notices what values have emerged and the taboos are really interesting. And he, he notices that it's because it started out with parents, seven adults who became parents that authority was established in that parental relationship. And it continued for a long time, I think well until Ish is a great grandfather. 
and I thought that was an interesting like observation. And then the taboo of like marital fidelity, like there's like in the other solar punk books, we saw a more open approach to sexual relationship and openness that people would have sexual relationships and move on or have polyamorous relationships. And in this book, it's, it's marital fidelity. And it was, I think it started with that intention of, of M and Ish that we're going to start a family and start populating the earth again. So having kids and having kids within committed relationship. I know the one about Evie is, is a taboo that none of the, that Evie is essentially not a partner. And that's kind of enforced with the, the young marriages. There's one other, it's the hammer. The kids have, have developed this mythology around the hammer and the library. And it's related to, to Ish. Like somehow he's been trying so hard to share knowledge. And what has happened is that the kids view the knowledge as this special resource that only Ish has access to, even though he's desperately trying to share it. Right. Mm-hmm. Gosh, it feels like, I don't know, it sounds like you're describing being the token nerdy kid in a rural community. Not that I know anything about that. <laughs> oh, no, me neither. No. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I'm not derailing us too much, but you really reminded me of Ish and his whole succession question and the problem of, okay, my skill set is not something that as needed as it was. What do I do now to make sure that whoever's leading is doing the right thing? And Ish really hones in on that idea of his son, Joey, being the person to take over because he sees so much of himself in Joey. And he thinks about how Joey is, you know, he's curious about the world around him. He's asking questions. Um, There's the example where they're trying to outfit a Jeep for two of his other sons to go on a tour and see what civilization is doing in other pockets around the country. And Joey comes up with the idea of all the tires are flat, except the tires that are already on the backs of the other Jeeps at the Jeep Depot. And so they take tires off of the backs of four Jeeps and suddenly have operating tires for the one that they're planning to take out. And so Ish puts all of this investment into Joey and thinking Joey is going to be the person to take over. And then Joey dies in the typhoid fever and he just has this hopelessness. And part of me, like the whole time I was reading was like, sir, you don't quite fit in this world. Why is a person like you the best person to lead this world? And, you know, even as he he goes through everybody on the list and he says, well, his was great at talking to people, but he's not enough like me. And George is really great at building things, but he's not enough like me. And like literally every woman in the tribe is great, but they've had so many babies. Haven't they just given enough? <laughs> yeah, that was I was like, um, um, I, really, I do think Em is in charge here, good sir. But yeah, <laughs> I had that impression too. M is wonderful. No, M is the M. M is truly the hero of the story, and I really want to read this book, but with her as the central character to it, just because, like, I think of her so much as the glue that holds the community to the get together for its first several decades. And Ish, when considering the book is centered on Ish, Ish clearly loves her very much. He clearly, like, she is the center of his world. He calls her the mother of nations half the time, and he talks about her in such reverent terms, but you can really tell the rest of the community respects her very much. And she just seems like she is, 
just very strong and very brave and very capable. And she's the one who says, I, you know, we, we got to get some more humans in here and there's only one way to do that. And he's off in, in the library at the university, like trying to read about obstetrics and getting distracted. And she's like, oh, I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah, there's a comedic element to this story that I'm not sure was intentional, but you could very much read it as Im is the hero and Ish has no idea. <laughs> he thinks he's the leader and everyone just tolerates him because he's attached to him. Yeah, that's definitely how I read it. <laughs> yeah, well, there's one moment where M really engages in sort of a philo- philosophical discussion. It's like when Ish is, is recovering from typhoid and he learns that Joey has died and he's really struggling and mourning. And he asks M, you know, is this punishment for executing Charlie? And M says, no, let's not bring back the mean God. And I thought that was really fascinating. Like, first of all, the idea that like we bring God into the world or we, you know, it's us. And she's like, no, we're not going to bring back that God. And that sets a foundation for the community, right? Like they tried church. It didn't quite take just the idea that that's a conscientious choice, that we're not going to accept this as, as a cause and effect in our world. And I think it goes back to that idea of what do you pass on when you know that a society very different from your own is going to come. And Ish is here like, we've got to teach everyone chemistry. (laughs) And about American democracy. we got to make them feel like they're Americans. Someone (laughs) will figure out chemistry-ish, but it would be very, very helpful to just in big, bold letters say, no mean God (laughs) (laughs) or something along those lines so that you know, we, we don't revisit a lot of the things that happen when, you know, God gods punish you and gods are mean and hurtful towards you. So, I mean, I'm, I like talking about Im and her clear desire to take on the task of repopulating the world, which she does very competently and very bravely. That is also a form of seeking a succession, but it's very different than Ish's form. Right. And it goes back to like the first year they want to measure time. Ish wants to measure time and figures out how to do that. And M says, yeah, so we can celebrate the baby's birthday. (laughs) And and she's like, oh, so like a woman to want to celebrate the baby's birthday. And it's like, well, why do you want to measure time? It's not it's not to farm. He's not farming. Right. I don't see you planting crops. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But I like, yeah, that this building society she's focused on raising her children well they both want some continuation of who they are Mm. i mean that's what having children is right and they want some continuation of society he wants more a continuation of civilization she wants to ensure that the human species continues but those are very related and they end up with the same production children so thinking again about man and nature and where does that separation happen? And like, can there be a separation? And it it's, feels like the conclusion is that Ish, Ish's own human nature is something he cannot escape. Like he, his human nature is to be an, an intellectual, an observer. And when all of the infrastructure around that lifestyle collapse, he he can't continue, which I think is really interesting. Like it's, it's just a new, I, I haven't encountered that in any, any book before, because I think in the books I've read before, it's like, Ish would be, he would be a real leader. He would be like 
actually building. And I think it's fascinating that he, that he doesn't. And I think it has something to do with the fact that he's the only one, um, that there's something about needing other people. His nature is as much of an impediment to, to rebuilding society as the nature of all the kids and the people who are like building a latrine and then they lose interest in the afternoon and go fishing instead. And like, it's the same, it feels like the same thing, like their nature means that they don't focus on a task that is extremely necessary to prevent disease, but they just lose interest. And then, and it's the same with Ish that he's, he's fighting his own nature or something about his own nature is preventing him. And, and in the end, it doesn't matter. Like in the end, the tribe is a successful, healthy community. I mean, it's a harsh (laughs) conclusion. Like what, what did it all really, what did their intentions matter? Because in the end they had a community. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you also touch on something that we see come up a lot in the other solar punk books, where there is a huge society-wide change, and people change, you know, in many cases, everything about their lives, their values, how they live, how they eat, how they um, consume everything. And those books tend to take change they tend to accept that radical change is possible for a human and for a society. Whereas here, Ish doesn't really change. He just becomes outdated because circumstances change around him. And that is something I've always wondered with other solar punk books. Like, do people really, are people really capable of that kind of radical change that quickly? And which ones, and if so, it's not everyone. So who is and who isn't? Hmm. I think about, I think something we talked about during the prep call and that idea of, you know, Jack is the great grandson um, and how different Jack is from Ish and how Jack, you know, is, is bow hunting and they, he's taking coins and he's turning them into arrowheads because they're better for shooting different types of game. And he's got a mountain lion like draped around his shoulders and the mountain lion was the thing that had attacked Ish and had rendered him, you know, partially disabled, things like that. And how like Jack's life, his world that he interacts with is so different. Um, And it was another thing where like I compared it and I thought about like my great grandparents and how like the example, I have a great grandparent who played piano in silent movie theaters for her job. And you know, compare that to now I have, you know, all of YouTube, I can just pull it up in my phone and it's got all kinds of sounds. And I wish most of the things didn't make sounds, but there they are. Um, and so I think no matter what your, your great grandchildren, your subsequent generations are going to be living in a dramatically different world. And sometimes that means that it goes from a piano and a theater down to a phone in your pocket. And sometimes that goes from the mountain lion attacking you to you wearing the mountain lion. Um, and I think that one of the lessons that we really can take from this book is that, you know, things are going to change and you don't always know how they're going to change. And everybody could be gone when you come back from your research trip in the mountains or everybody could have invented a totally new thing and you have to get used to it when you get back from your research you know, trip to the mountains as Ish begins his story. So I was, I I don't know, I'm really interested in that idea that no matter what stuff is going to change and people are going to need different tools from the tools that worked for you. And I don't think Ish ever quite figures that out. (laughs) I, yeah, I, I agree with that analysis. I think that's great. It just makes 
me realize that part of what I want from life, and obviously we don't always get what we want, but is a sense of continuity between all my actions, right? And to get that, you can't really have serious world dislocating change like here, right? Like I like to imagine that the effort I took, you know, when I was in college and really shy to overcome that, like helps me now on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, the working on learning Spanish, which I never did quite successfully, but I think still the effort really helped me become more sensitive to language, which helps me in my job now, which is all about language. Like I want to see those threads of continuity But if tomorrow civilization basically ended, none of that would matter, right? (laughs) Like there would be a before and an after that I think would leave me feeling alienated from my own past in really painful ways. Like, well, what was that even worth? You know, like, wow, I spent all that time networking for my job and it certainly isn't going to matter after the apocalypse, right? But do you guys feel that drive for continuity between the parts of your life, past, present, and future? Yeah, in our last discussion in Seven Eves, we were talking about a big shift that feels like your past self dies. And mm-hmm. I've definitely gone through a couple of those shifts, it feels like. And, you know, they were painful. And if someone comes to me and says, well, it all happened for a reason, or that experience is valuable for I hate that. I reject that. <laughs> like, no, sometimes you waste your time and it sucks and you just have to move on and do the best you can now. So, so you're much more dynamic than I am <laughs> getting out of that. Maybe, maybe they're somewhere in the middle where I want the things that I planned to turn out the way I planned them. But mm-hmm. when things are terrible, I don't want it to be because I planned poorly. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think it means that our actions don't have a purpose. Like sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. You just got to like try. You got to try stuff out. Like, yeah. Like Ish, I don't know what clicked in his brain, but when he he makes the bows and arrows, like we like Solar Punk, we've talked about using technology for a better future instead of looking at the past, and he looks forward. Like, what do my grandchildren need right now? They need to be able to hunt, and here's a tool that I can make, and they can learn to make with the supplies available and provide for themselves after all of the canned goods run out or go bad. You know, and so and that becomes very important to the tribe, Jack uses arrows and he takes coins and makes arrowheads which i thought was fascinating that like at one point where ish is trying to explain currency to joey and what all the coins mean and what the faces mean and 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 joey's like i like the big nickels because they're shiny and big (laughs) you know and like (laughs) ish didn't quite get the lesson through well his great grandson jack they're like oh yeah we use these for arrowheads like and they're everywhere and he doesn't know why and he doesn't know why there are people on them and there's a bird that doesn't quite look like any of the birds that they see in the San Francisco area <laughs> but like there was sort of a mismatch there and a mismatch in in what what's useful about knowing about currency right well what happened to be useful is that it's metal that can be sharpened into arrowheads not the history of America right, <laughs> right? and yeah. But Ish's actions in teaching and doing it in the way that he did it, pl- using it like a game and, and understanding that that was the way to teach these kids how to use these tools is to treat it like a game. And, you know, the fad ran out, but then it came back the next year. And what was important was that the skill for making bows and arrows was passed on. You know, his actions had meaning, not necessarily fully in the way he expected or intended, but it's still it's still important. It's still a valuable contributor to the tribe. It's like he learned how to teach 
and it only took him 20 years <laughs> or however long yeah <laughs> which is which is telling you something if he's a grad student and he's trying to be on the professorial track prior to what this starts i would not have liked to take his class right <laughs> Yeah, I he had to let go of the idea that he would have a successor in in Joey, and it unfortunately it had to be taken away from him in a horrible way. But yeah, he had to kind of let let go of that expectation. I do, Margaret. I really like what you said about change happens, and you know we all are maybe alienated from our grandparents in ways they couldn't have imagined, and then the same with you know our grandchildren or you know people who are related to us down the line. And is that really so different than what has happened to Ish? Maybe it's not. Maybe we just get to lie to ourselves that there is greater continuity because a lot of the outward symbols are still the same, right? We're still using the same coins and we understand what they mean. But maybe in fundamental ways, it's not that different. But are we even using the same coins? She was in France at the time. France doesn't even (laughs) use the same coins. (laughs) Yeah. When I was just thinking, when was the last time I actually held coins? in the flesh, as it were. It's been a while, right? Like, I don't use cash for anything. So there's a difference there, too. I wonder if we have a moment to talk about nature and people's relationship with nature and how Stuart kind of bookends Mm -hmm. um, the book with conflicts with nature. Yeah. I was thinking about how um, the book opens um, with Ish out in the woods doing his research for his dissertation and getting bit by a rattlesnake and thinking about how at the beginning of the book he's going through and he's trying to do something he is being an active participant and the snake gets in his way and interrupts the hill he was trying to climb and he's got to go back to the cabin and do what he can considering he's in the woods to mitigate the snake bite right and then at the end of the book um, he's an old man. He's not able to walk for himself. The The neighborhood is on fire and his great grandson and some other men from the community are carrying him away, carrying Ish and carrying Ish's hammer away from danger. And they're walking down this road and they see a mountain lion. And I know I was just talking about how the great grandson is wearing the skin of a mountain lion um, for the final chapter of the book. But now, now is not the time. Everything is on fire. We are carrying our great grandfather. It is not the time to fight this mountain lion. And so instead of going through nature and going into conflict with nature, they, they skirt around the mountain lion. We'll, we'll deal with you another day, Mr. Mountain Lion. We're trying to get to the bridge, trying to get to San Francisco. Um, and so I thought it was interesting how kind of you see like both these micro and macro conflicts between humanity and nature at the beginning and the end. And you see how at the beginning, when Ish is a young man, Ish is trying to fight nature and nature tries to fight humanity and wins by sending this pandemic to it and wiping out everybody, but like seven people in the whole Bay area. And then at the end, you also see nature doing its thing and setting fire to the hills in the East Bay area in Berkeley or wherever it's supposed to be. And then you see people just saying, all right, we don't need this neighborhood. We are going to go somewhere else and we are going to figure it out. And so I think that that relationship, it does a really good job of encapsulating how like that relationship between like people and nature has changed. Um, and rather than being like, the, the I don't know if top dog is the right way to say it, but rather than feeling like nature is something that we use and we're going to do what we want with it and I'm just going to go out and do this research and I'm going to learn about it and 
I know Ish thinks about killing the snake, but says that's a waste of time. Like literally snake, you are not even worth my time. And you just tried to kill me <laughs> going from that, that feeling of being in charge to having to, to, to get away, to skirt around was really telling. And so now like these people are much more a part of nature. Like Jack is wearing a mountain lion with Levi's mm-hmm. because they're still scavenging to a certain extent, but Going back to nature, that returning to nature, that interacting with nature, that no longer being quite the boss of nature in the way that they were was a really interesting theme. And I wanted to dig into that a little bit and see what y'all thought about it. I think, I mean, Ish, or the narrator's explicit there at the end that Ish observes them walking around the mountain lion, which requires them to leave the road because the mountain lion is on the road um, with a sense of sadness because a sense of sadness and kind of wonder that these young men don't just fight the mountain lion, even though that would be totally irrational in these circumstances. But there is a feeling of dislocation, right? The mountain lion has pushed the people off the road and we're just going to let that happen. But I think that's kind of one of the sadness. That's the sadness and the beauty of this book, right? Earth abides. Like You find earth beautiful. That is beautiful. Humans, maybe they don't, or at least not in a recognizable form. I think it's interesting like, like we know in the right circumstances, Joe, not Joey, Jack can probably hold his own against a mountain lion because he's wearing one. Right. Yes. Yeah. Just not right now when you're carrying your great grandfather ish. You are the reason right now. <laughs> <laughs> the fire is probably also a reason. But the fact that they don't want the mountain lion to hurt you is probably the reason that they're not getting out their bows and arrows right now. That's true. So, oh, yeah. ish. I think this book is particularly interesting in the context of the other solar punk books, which obviously have a great love of nature, but there's also a huge emphasis on technology being able to overcome, you know, any difficulties associated with nature and somehow doing it in still a very green and friendly way, because uh, it's the essence of solar punk. But in those other books, you know, nature does not have the upper hand as much as it is beloved. I think that that's a big difference. Well, yeah, in Psalm for the Wild Built, we talked about the story of reintroducing wolves to Yellowstone. And like the robot in that book talked about how fear, like fear is part of nature and humans have built civilization um, and have sort of relegated fear to an option, right? Like, like I've been skydiving, (laughs) like, because in my daily life, I don't, I don't have to interact with poisonous animals or mountain lions that threaten my safety. Right. Like I can go out for pleasure and seek out a fearful experience. Like, yeah. And that's what civilization allows. Is that what Ish was doing at the beginning? He was taking advantage of, of the leisure of going out into nature. And then he knows that he can come back and write books about it in the, in a nice, safe, cozy library. But in the end, there's no retreat. Like you fight that mountain lion and you have to deal with the very real consequences of maybe being injured. Maybe you have to carry the mountain lion with you. Like there's there's a lot there. There are more burdensome consequences to that. Does that characterize like was there a difference between the beginning with the rattlesnake like and, and the, the ending with the mountain lion? Like I'm not sure I'm seeing a full characterization of each of those encounters and how they reflect each other. I think that the things that they're doing, or I say specifically they, I mean Ish, um, the things that Ish is doing kind of make those differences for me. Like the in the beginning, 
I think Ish is, Ish is a geographer. Um, and so he is, you know, out there in the field and he is doing, a, you know, his surveying work and he is trying to better understand the world around him. And he is that being in charge is very central to what he is doing when the snake bites him. And it is very much like you, you have interrupted my my interaction with nature, piece of nature. <laughs> um <laughs> And I think, I, and and y'all can y'all can call me out on this if it doesn't quite fit, but I feel like Jack is just in nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that <laughs> um, makes sense. We're gonna get away from this fire. We're not gonna get mauled by this cat. We're gonna get across the bridge, whatever bridge is, um, and we're gonna get away from you know Berkeley burning down. Yeah, just so. reasonable circumstance specific decisions without any sort of additional need to feel like you gotta conquer nature. Right. Yeah. Right. Like Jack defines, he says he's happy and he defines happiness as things are as they are and I am part of them. And that sort of baffles Ish, but I, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's in response to Ish's question Are you happy? Mm-hmm. And he's baffled by the question at all. Right. Which that's a pretty successful society if someone's just even baffled by that question. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I also wonder how like Ish's realization like hits as he's going on his cross country trip at the beginning of the book. And so like he finds a car and then he finds like a police motorcycle and he loads the motorcycle onto the back of the car in case something happens to the car in the desert. And at some point he comes to this realization, like if something happens to this car, who am I going to talk to anyway? Mm-hmm. and just decides to jettison the motorcycle and keep driving knowing that if he loses the car he loses himself and what you know how much has been lost if there's really nothing out there you know yeah um and i kind of wonder how that fits in because i feel like ish clearly like he's learning and he's thinking about things like he's clearly thinking about things but he does <laughs> things as a result of thinking about things at least at one point in the book and i wonder I don't know why you you talking about like Ish and his relationship to nature. It reminded me of that because it's not that he's giving up at that point. It's that he's getting a little bit of that Jack spirit of I am in this situation. I am in this ecosystem. I am in this place. I am in this time. And I'm just going to roll with that. And mm-hmm. so he gets that a little bit. I don't yeah, know that he fully embraces it, but I just it's there for that second when he throws the motorcycle off the back of the station wagon and goes. Yeah, he like lets go. He says that as like letting go of of fear or embracing fear. Something about like it's like he's embracing he's embracing that he can't control the outcome of his trip. Mm-hmm. Like he can't which I think is that's that's beautiful. I think that's a big part of solar punk too is embracing embracing being a part of things and not necessarily being on top like we've been talking about. Well, it's interesting though cuz I think in solar punk that recognition comes a lot within society. Cuz so many of the solar punk communities that have been described everyone does their part and they're happy to do it, right? There are not necessarily dramatic heroes and villains and you know, it's a different view of society. You're like, we're all working together to achieve this goal. Uh, and here there's a little bit more of that connection in relationship to nature. Hmm. Should we talk a little bit about genre themes? 
Yes. What um I mean this is this is very different from the other books we've read. So was there a, a big one that stood out to you as a genre theme? Well, I mean this conversation has made me think that the relationship to the past and how well or quickly people can change or not mm-hmm. is actually a, a really crucial theme for all solar punk. And this book talks about what happens when people maybe aren't flexible enough to make the big changes. Yeah, I mean, he does, when he does his first cross-country trip, he notices, like, people have a different reaction to him because they have the experience of watching people around them get sick and die. And he didn't because he was secluded. And there is there is a difference there. Um, and so I wonder how much that, like, horrible experience either accelerates the change or maybe, like, st- makes people stagnate, you know? Mm-hmm. And... M is amazing because she's ready to move forward. She lost a husband and two children and she's, she's ready to have a new husband and have more children. And they lose, they lose more than just Joey in those years too. I think they lose another child, Yeah. but they, they, that resiliency to continue and not let grief stop you. Like that's pretty astounding. And I think, you know, if, if there was a big societal change, like we would all be grieving something, mm-hmm. even if we don't lose our loved ones in death. We'll, we're, yeah, I mean, you've been talking about that too, Carolyn, already the grief. I do think that's an interesting point though, because grief can be a catalyst for change, right? And so can trauma actually, but it can also push you into not being flexible enough. I think here though, maybe because Ish did not have as terrible an experience, there's not a hard line for him between the past and the present. Maybe there needed to be. You know, maybe if he had had experiences that drew that line a little more starkly, you know, maybe he would have changed. Maybe he would have been a different person more suited to this world. Hmm. My favorite trope was the people standing out and enjoying the sunlight and the fresh air. I didn't find that moment in this book. Did, did I miss it or was it not present? Yeah, it wasn't. First one without it. Interesting. Not even yeah. like the, the, the new year marking where they, they, they gather together and they note, you know, what year it is by chiseling a number into the rock. And then they say, this is the year that the year that Joey read or the year of the mountain lions or whatever it is, because they may not be necessarily in the sunlight. And that's interesting because they do it at the at the winter solstice, more or less. And so there's not sunlight. But they definitely do gather and like express that they have had a year together in community and talk about what the big idea of that community was. And it's stark that they stop saying what year it is, the year that Charlie comes and the year that they, you know, kind of go from feeling vaguely like a hippie commune to executing somebody in a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And so I think... I wonder how that idea of the gathering to mark the years fits in. And I wonder if the fact that they do it at the time of year when there is the least sun kind of stands in opposition to the rest of this genre. Yeah. Hmm. Despite it being a book named Earth Abides, there are not moments where the narrator appreciates the beauty of nature. Some of the descriptions of nature I found to be beautiful, but certainly Ish is not particularly appreciating it. And that is different. Which is no, really he d- interesting to somebody who studies Earth. Yeah. <laughs> but until the end, the end, he's looking at the <laughs> the mountains that look like a woman's breasts. Oh, yes, that's true. At the very end. What do these mountains really look like? Like you think about like the, the Teton Range in Wyoming and I'm just like, 
you you've been in the woods for a while so. <laughs> <laughs> right <sighs> i mean you're in hill country you don't see those hills I have never, no, I have never seen those hills. <laughs> As you pointed out, this book is kind of, is very different from the other solar punk books. It's more of a counterpoint than anything, but it's a counterpoint on some related issues too. Like work should be enjoyable. Uh, you know, here the problem is it's, the tribe is only willing to do what's enjoyable, right? And they are not very, what Ish would call disciplined. Yeah. I mean, they get it done, though. Like, the water goes out, but it's a problem for a day until they figure out, oh, we'll just go get water from our well. Like, they eventually dig the latrines and the wells. So I don't know how big of a problem that is. Like, it seems like a big problem at first, but they they get it done when it's absolutely necessary. That's a way to live. I'm not comfortable with that, but it's a way to live. It feels like there's a spectrum, the pre-collapse idea about work is that work is all important and the harder you work and in some ways the more miserable it is the better and then solar punk kind of reacts against that and says well what if work was enjoyable and then this book says what if we didn't work (laughs) like (laughs) what if we just said no (laughs) like what would that mean the idea that different work is enjoyable for different people like george loves to fix things Mm-hmm. And I think that George genuinely enjoys making sure that like the paint trim on the houses is really lovely. Things like that. Ish probably genuinely loves doing academic research. That is enjoyable work for him. And so I think that one of the things that the book points out, at least for me at the point in my life where I am, is that you've got to have a balance of people who enjoy doing different kinds of work. I don't think anybody's going to be happy digging the latrine. So we got to get together and get that done. But you definitely do like, we definitely need a Maureen in my house, for instance, because like nobody in my house derives immense enjoyment from making the kitchen look gorgeous, for instance. And so it rarely looks suitable. Um, And so, but, but I've got family members where I go to their house and I'm just like, how did you do this? And they just, they love having people over and keeping a beautiful home and they have different strengths from me. And so to have a good society, you've got to have people with all those strengths. And I think, I don't know, like I kept wanting to push ish to look, to see like all of the things that all of these people are contributing. Um, And he recognizes it and he keeps discounting it. Like in the part I was talking about earlier where he's like, Ezra is so good at talking to people. But is that really leadership? <laughs> I know, right? And M is so good at inspiring people. But is that really leadership? Leadership is being me and I am leader. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know, when they're going, when they first find George, Ish is like, oh, he's a carpenter. It'd be better to have a mechanic. And I was like, are you, what, what are you talking about? It's great to have a carpenter. He has this thought that like, oh, it'd be better to have a mechanic. And then I later on when he's like sort of musing and, you know, as an old man and losing time and all that, he thinks about, he has the thought that we were really lucky that the people who survived and who became part of the tribe, it was those people. So like his mind changes on that. He's able to like think about, actually, it was lucky we had the people we had. And even though at the moment he was wishing for different kinds of people, I'm glad that Ish had that kind of growth. That's true. <laughs> but it was out of his control. Again, I, I keep thinking that this book is about, well, it is Earth Abides, despite what human humans do. And it's like, all of this is out of human control. We ready for final thoughts? I'm going to keep thinking about continuity 
with the future? And do we really even have that anyway, regardless of whether or not there is a cataclysmic uh, division between past and future? I don't know. Maybe there's not. Maybe that's sort of a self-sustaining lie. Um, <laughs> I got to think about that. And then another thing that I want to think about going forward with the with thinking about solar punk is the relationship to nature and sort of the question of well if we love nature so much why not why not just embrace that it will abide whether or not we're here you know it might take a different form but it'll be here and why is that not enough so those are my thoughts that I'll keep with keep keep turning over after this Margaret do you want to go ahead I'm thinking about a couple of different things. I'm thinking about that idea of people trying very hard to be out of nature versus being in nature and being part of nature, like Ish telling, you know, essentially thinking about, you know, hey, snake, you're interrupting my interactions with nature when the snake is part of nature. And really Ish is part of nature too. Um, And they're all in that together and thinking about being more connected to things that at least at this time of year in Texas, I would prefer not to be connected to because it's very hot outside and I do not like it. So I'm thinking about that. And I'm also thinking, I guess I'm thinking in general about ecosystems. I'm thinking about that natural ecosystem and how we're part of that natural ecosystem, but I'm also thinking about people ecosystems and how we're part of people ecosystems where you've got to have people who are good at different things and people who bring different ways of knowing things to the table and people who think about problems in different ways to really like survive as a community. And so I just, those are two things I'm thinking about. So maybe at the end of the day, I'm thinking about ecosystems. Well, I'm going to try and think more about what would I miss if civilization disappeared? Because I don't know, I maybe I have fooled myself into thinking I've read enough apocalyptic books that I'd be ready. (laughs) but maybe I won't be maybe I wouldn't be and uh yeah like what what do I need or what what have I surrounded myself with that I'm dependent on civilization for so about that listeners what did you think of earth abides have you read any books by George Stewart what do you think about solar punk and specifically about whether the past will have continuity with the future let us know by recording a voice memo and emailing openingquestion at gmail.com. You can also comment on our Substack at bookclubpod.substack.com. We will read your responses and play your voice memos on our feedback episode at the end of the season. Our next book discussion will be about Walk Away by Cory Doctorow. Read with us. We'll release that episode next week, and you can get your copy by using the affiliate link in our show notes. Book Club Podcast is produced by me, Carly Jackson, and Caroline Gorman. Music and audio editing by Alex Marcus. Thank you to special guest Margaret Gary. Thanks for listening. Bye.